because owning a business or being a CEO can get very lonely at times. Quickly and early on, I realized there's no substitute for a handshake and looking someone in the eye and have a conversation. We have all these meetings and nobody knows what's going on. It's people first, then profit. Profit is a result. don't mind introducing us to yourself, telling us about your company and what you do a little bit. That'd be great. Sure. I'm uh, John Andrews. I'm the CEO of uh, Best Pass Inc. We are a company that is owned by the New York State Motor Truck Association, of all things. We were founded 15 some odd years ago, provide toll management service for the trucking industry. And eight years ago, I was brought on board to kind of take it to the next level and do something a little bit more than a membership. And we'll get into probably what we do a little bit later. If you're trying to explain it to someone who has no idea about the industry or about your company at all, what was the easiest way? Yeah, that's I get asked that all the time. So people are familiar with electronic tolling. Uh, if you're familiar with Easy Pass or Sun Pass in Florida or K-Tag in Kansas or um, Fast Pass in California, Fast Track actually, I think it's called. If you live in those areas, you have no problem. You open up an account in that area and you run your toll and you're okay. But if you're a trucking company like FedEx or UPS or Warner or JB Hunt or some of these large carriers that go coast to coast, you end up opening up accounts across the country and you line the inside of your truck with transponders to, to solve all that problem. So what BestPass does basically is we provide a single transponder and a single bill and a single help desk for trucking companies to manage their electronic toll across the U.S. Yeah, that seems like it makes sense. It's just simpler. Instead of opening, you're saying 10 or 15 different accounts throughout the States, just they kind of come to you and you take care of the ball? Exactly. So one of the things that we do is if you think about the tolling authorities, EasyPass, for instance, has 25 million transponders deployed. Well, most of those transponders are what we call two cars in a driveway. So they're the folks that drive into New York City and commute every day or into Boston or into Philadelphia, right? Those are all the folks that are primarily their customers. They're just not built or geared to handle large fleet operations. And that's where we, it's a nice niche. We serve both tolling and the trucking industry. It's a neat little business. Everybody wins. Did you dream of this when you were a child? Absolutely not. You never could have told me I was a, <laughs> you know, a toll mogul, as people call me. <laughs> could have never told you, you said? <laughs> yep. Why don't we go ahead and jump back to college and I guess your growth up to Best Pass? Because hopefully we have a lot of entrepreneurs who are younger, who are trying to start their own companies and trying to just get a feel for where you were at that point in your life. I'm a tech guy at heart. I went to college, St. Bonaventure University, started off taking accounting. Couldn't take that wasn't very fun, but loved computers. So I started taking all the computer science classes and then quickly learned that I needed to take calculus, trigonometry, and all that fun math stuff, which was pulling me off of the fun computer stuff. So luckily, I had a good professor that allowed me to pair up business and computer science, which at the time, I was just trying to do all the computer science stuff without the math. And it turned out later in life that that was a very beneficial decision. But until I became CEO at BestPass, I was a tech guy. I was a software developer coming out of school. I worked my way up through middle management at software companies. My last gig before I uh, moved over to BestPass was director of development for a software company. Jumping from that mode where I'm working with a bunch of geeks. And what type of development were you doing, just so we get an idea? It's off-the-shelf management software for school buses, actually. We wrote software that would manage how school districts would route school buses to pick kids up, which you'd think would be not a big deal, but it's actually a very big logistical problem. Um, and I was director of development for a, a company that did that. 
you mind just giving us a little bit more details? That's kind of interesting because you don't ever think about that, I think, and maybe you're developing that yourself. Well, if you think about it, a school district of any size. So the school district I, uh, I, I live in is Niskeen in New York, and they have about 2,500 kids. Well, the houses are neatly arranged in rows that allow the kids from high school get, to get picked up here, or the kids in elementary school get picked up here. Then you have elementary schools that are dispersed throughout the district with one central high school, and you have a limited number of buses. So if you have, I don't know, 65 buses in a district like that, you have to figure out what's the most efficient way to pick up all the elementary kids, get them to school, pick up all the middle school kids, get them to school, pick up all the high schoolers and get them to school. And what we wrote is mapping-based software that would plot all the kids on a town map and then algorithmically route the buses throughout the neighborhoods to make sure the kids were picked up on the right-hand side because you don't want kids crossing for bus. Make sure that the parents that have little kindergartners have all their special needs taken care of, handicap issues. So if you bundle all that in there, it's an ideal software solution. And that's uh, what we worked on for probably, I was there for a good eight years leading up to Best Pass. Basically, I guess out of college, your 20 years of development and just kind of working for the companies and became, you were saying, director of development of the last one, but you weren't like a CEO of any of those companies or an entrepreneur yet? No, I mean, I did do nights and weekends. This is how I got involved with Best Pass. Nights and weekends, I was uh, doing some side work to make a little extra money to pay for vacations and whatnot. So I guess you could say I was kind of a CEO of my own little one-person consulting firm. But other than that, I was middle manager and heads down writing code, jumping to CEOs. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, let's talk about that transition, how that happened. It sounded like 2009 when you ended up at TransFinder, that last development position. And can you tell us about making the transition to Best Pass? So again, I was doing the consulting work on the side and one of the companies I was working with was the New York State Motor Truck for this small toll program called Best Pass. So I was the guy nights and weekends making sure that their software ran to run the program. And when they started to look for a CEO, I was in talking to the chairman about some software mods because he was filling in while they were looking for a CEO. And there's literally a joke, I said, would you consider a pretty ambitious tech guy as a CEO? And the next day I got a phone call and they threw me their keys to the business and I haven't turned back since. I have definitely have an entrepreneurial spirit. Every company I've worked for, um, I've always liked to push the envelope on the solutions and I love applying technology to business. So this opportunity at Best Pass was like a, a dream come true, although there was some bumps along the way. But it was a dream come true to be able to apply that kind of meshing of technology with making money, with solving problems all to kind of one button position called CEO. As a guy on the weekends who was doing that, do you care to elaborate like how much money you might've been making there? And then when all of a sudden you're CEO, like the difference in money from, <laughs> you know, TransFinder to CEO? So yes, when I was working nights and weekends, I was probably generating maybe $50,000 annually uh, on the side, which is good money. And you know, luckily technology provides that kind of $110 an hour type work you can do sides. But the interesting thing about transitioning that kind of thought process to CEO is that nobody who wants you in a CEO role wants you doing that nights and weekends. So, so one of the things I had to give up was all that side work, but it quickly got filled in with the same type of thought process of how do I provide service to customers? I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of that, that, that awkward transition. And what do you tell your old company when you're doing that? I mean, was it just like over the weekend kind of thing? You switched over to the new company? So basically, uh, you know, when I had this opportunity, I went into my boss at the old company and said, listen, I have an opportunity of a lifetime to go from middle management to CEO, get to see what I can do. And they understood. They understood an opportunity like that it doesn't come along all the time. So they gladly shook my hand and said, good luck. What did you see that, or what did maybe the guy, the intern CEO see in you make you want to be CEO? And <laughs> what, what was the interview process like? You said they threw you the keys, but I imagine they probably interviewed a few 
other two. They did. And what the hard part they had was they, the CEOs they were talking to were having a hard time seeing the business in it. And I'll talk about that in a second, because in hindsight, I didn't see it either. But as the tech guy, I thought, oh, geez, I understand the business. So I've got a leg up. And if they'd be willing to give me a shot, I'd be willing to give it a go. But they had a really hard time finding what I would call established CEOs, CEOs that have been in other companies to come in and kind of mature the company and take it to the next level. Because at the time, it really wasn't really wasn't well-defined what the product was or what tomorrow would bring. It was really kind of a, um, a member-based benefit over the New York State Thruway. So at the time, it was a lot smaller operation. There were only three people in the company at the time. I was number four. But that transition, and, and they saw somebody that had the energy that they thought was technology-based and understood the business from a technology point of view, and they figured there was nothing to lose but other than to give me a shot. So they, they understood they weren't getting someone that necessarily knew how to read a balance sheet and a P&L, which I'll be the first to admit when I looked at a balance sheet when I walked in the door. <laughs> I, what is this? What is it telling me? And uh, it's taken me a few years to finally start to go, oh, that's what that is. So they took a chance on me and it's paid off. Where are you at today as far as employee account revenue? So yeah, like I said, we were four and we were processing about, let's say about 40 million a year in total volume and generating a, right around 2 million in revenue. Today we are at 65 employees. We're on track to process 700 million in total total volume and revenues will be somewhere in the 15 to 20 range for this year. When we're looking at this, let's go ahead and talk a little bit more what they're trying describe the business was and what you saw it. And I guess just better describe it, that transition. And this, I think, goes right to the heart of being an entrepreneur. I think at the time, what I saw the business being is not what it ended up being. So at the time, they saw this valuable service that was providing management capability for trucking. But it was, again, it was only in the New York State Thruway. So I thought as a software guy, I could come in, write some more software, provide more services, and just kind of grow the business that way. What the opportunity that came along was that the uh, tolling partner in the Throughway that we were working with wanted us to take over, and without getting into all the details of tolling, it's the throughway is a piece of Easy Pass, and Easy Pass runs from Maine to North Carolina over to uh, Illinois. Well, the throughway came along and said, We would like you to manage all the toll, not just the throughway. And that created an opportunity to radically change the business from this local kind of New York throughway based service to a more regional. Once we did that, then my entrepreneurial spirit kicked in and went, Wow, this could get big. We looked at all the trucking companies across the US and started to see a market. It was not tens of thousands of trucks, but hundreds of thousands of trucks. And that's kind of how the ball got rolling. And then luckily, because I'm a tech guy, we just kept writing software and kept our prices low and overhead low. And it just started to get some momentum. And I won't get into the details of how we got to today, but that's basically the transition from what I thought it was going to be, this little niche company of maybe five people to what it is now. And we have a lot of runway to go. We're just beginning them. If I'm looking at it from an outsider's perspective, again, basically, you're just condensing everything for them to make it easier. That's what the toll people came to you and said they wanted? Yes. Okay. And did you have competitors at the time too or no? There are a couple of players in, in the industry. That mostly there's two companies that focus on the rental car market, which is very much like what we do, but focused on, you know, your Hertz's and your Avis's. And then there's one other company that is a competitor, but we like to say we're on cooperation. Their kind of business is way station bypass is their focus and they add toll for trucking and our business is tolling and we add way station bypass as a service. So we are in cooperation with each other. We work together and we compete sometimes. There really is no direct competition other than the tolling authorities. And again, like I said earlier, their business is not fleet management of toll or national toll or interoperability. The New York State Thruway doesn't really worry whether you have a problem in California. And that's where we kind of uh, really have lost. What is the biggest thing that took off this company is whenever the tolling companies started calling you and telling you they wanted you all to take over? 
Yeah, and even that process was interesting because while New York understood what we did and wanted us to take over more, the other tolling authorities in Florida, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, California, Colorado, we had to do our due diligence and drive ourselves into there and try to kind of sell a story. And that was the next evolution of a tech guy to go from that to flying around the country, actually pitching what we do and and selling the no-cost solution to the tolling world. And that sounds like a good thing. It's actually very hard to sell somebody something that doesn't cost them anything. That was one of the earlier challenges that probably took a good three years to kind of work through. We have a map in our office that shows all the places that flown to get this national network in place. What's that look like? Oh, it's got, there are strings for all the toll facilities and bridges that we operate on now. And then there are flags for every place that I've flown to have a meeting. And I think it's got to be easily 70 to 80 flags, some of multiple meetings. So one flag represents multiple trips in order to put this this loose network together. So you go from tech guy, sales guy, it sounds like? Yep. (laughs) Tell us about that. Tell us about the transition. And how'd you learn that? I, you learn it the hard way. You realize that if you want to grow a business, you got to start talking to folks. So one of the really big lessons I learned from as being a tech guy is I thought you could do what we're doing here. You could get on the phone, you could Skype, you could video conference and, and actually create these business relationships. Really quickly and early on, I realized there's no substitute for a handshake and looking someone in the eye and have a conversation. So my earlier mistakes when I was trying to do this was doing everything over the phone. I we really started to make progress when I would fly all day long to the West Coast, have an hour long meeting fly all the way back and I'd be banging my head on the on the train, the airplane going, why did I do that? But it unstuck things. So if I have any advice for folks that are trying to start up a business is it's all about meeting people, looking them in the eye, having a good idea and, and selling it genuinely. That's probably the biggest thing I've learned and they're probably the biggest factor in our, our success right now. Yeah, and I think that's really hard for some people to overcome. How long were you doing that in the beginning where you're just trying to do the calls and then it seems like such a waste of time. I guess if you're just looking at efficiency and like from our programmer's point of view, like, hey, why can't I do a sales thing over the phone? But just tell us a little bit more about this difference. Yeah, you got it. It's definitely my tech brain said, if you give someone an idea over the phone, they should get it and just say yes. It was probably a good, I want to say two years. So I started the end of 2009. It was probably 2011 towards the end that the lights started coming on that I was being more successful when I was in having face-to-face meetings. Then I would go out of my way to actually push myself into meetings or meet with people at trade shows and whatnot. And then it all started clicking. And then uh, like anything in the beginning, you're kind of klutzy about the conversations and your pitch and how you talk about the business and then you hone it in and it gets better. But yeah, I'd say it was a good two or three years before I went, oh, <laughs> that's what CEOs do. I guess it was just experience and learning that. But I mean, was there any other thing else that you're just picking up? It was just over time you kept figuring out, hey, I'm closing sales with guys that I actually see in person versus ones I'm emailing or talking to over the phone. Yeah, no, it was definitely actually seeing results, quicker results, meeting in person. But I do have to give credit to the chairman of the board at the time who an older gentleman, politically kind of connected. He comes from the political side of trucking. And he would be constantly in my office going, John, you have to get out there. You need to get out there and talk to people. And I would be arguing with him left and right. And eventually he pushed on me enough, literally getting me on airplanes. Sometimes he booked me air for them. So it took a little bit of prodding and mentorship too. So I guess if there's another lesson here is having a good mentor, having someone that'll uh, give you advice without strings attached is probably invaluable for someone jumping into uh, running or owning. It. And could you talk a little bit more about mentorship? Because I think in Anyone who's listening in is probably kind of looking for that. And hopefully just through this call, you know, obviously not like a permanent long-term mentor, but just hearing your story helped is a slow mentorship for them. I and mean, can you talk a little bit more about mentorship or if you had any collective groups with other entrepreneurs that helped you think and keep you going? Yeah. Like I said, the original Walter Thompson, the first chairman of SPAS was a very good mentor. I think I appreciate his advice more now than I did then. And his advice was without strength. So the key thing is to find people you can trust and be an honest with. 
because owning a business or being a CEO can get very lonely at times because everyone has their agendas. And that's not good agendas or bad agendas, but their agendas. And to actually find someone that, that you can expose some of your weaknesses or where you're deficient or your thoughts without having to worry about being judged or pushed or prodded based on another agenda is very important. So Walt Thompson got me kind of going. And from there, I've branched out and I, I talk with other CEOs local in the area. And then I'm a member of the Vistage Group, which is a CEO group, which functions in very much the same way. You can go and go, wow, I have this problem with a, this manager or executive, or this is a business challenge I have, or I'm being approached by this. It's really good to have people you can turn to and have those frank conversations that stay here. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. I mean, was there ever a time where you tried opening up to someone you thought you could trust in business and it ended up kind of backfiring on you? Yeah. I mean, there's always those conversations that that you sit there and you thought you judged someone correctly that you didn't. One of the things I think you learn early on when you jump into business ownership or CEO is you have to be guarded in what you share and who you talk to until you get a true lay of the land. What somebody presents in the beginning may not necessarily be what you get in the end. And again, their agendas may not necessarily align. So in the, in the early days, I would probably share a little bit too much about the business or the forward thinking things. And you learn very quickly, it starts to come back at you in ways that you didn't necessarily expect. So you learn pretty quickly have your core group of people, your core, your manager, your mentors, and leave everybody else at arm's length until there's kind of a mutual understanding as to... Coming from your point of view, I guess if you're a middle manager before, you're kind of maybe used to being more open versus CEO role? Yes, absolutely. Being in the middle, you're transparent with your staff and you're obviously talking to leadership above you that is aligned in goals. So you will try to apply that worldview to the CEO position, even with your own board of directors, it cannot work the way you think it's going to. So yeah, that's definitely is a different different mindset, different set of um, priorities. Could you give us maybe a little bit more detail on the type of information that maybe you should withhold if you are the first time you know, president or CEO? I think if you're a tech guy like me, you love solutions. You love providing solutions. You love fixing things. You like when people get excited about a solution you provide. So in my early days, I'd be so excited about what we were doing that I would start to divulge things that weren't necessarily done yet. Well, in the CEO position, when you're running around talking to people, you're talking to folks that could actually take that idea and potentially do something with it. Now, luckily, nothing was major was exposed that anybody has come back to us with. But in hindsight, you can start to see the people that you talk to that you probably should have been a little more guarded about what tomorrow is going to bring. Talking about a solution is one thing, actually exposing in a pure excitement exactly what you're going to do can be risky business for a CEO. What other type of information or would you want to share with people who are becoming this first time president or they're just a developer, but now they're making that transition and having to become more of the head leader. What other type of changes do you advise that they make? <laughs> Grow a thick skin. Be patient. I think that's another lesson I learned is that middle manager, you don't necessarily have to be patient because you're driving towards uh, probably shorter term goals. As CEO, you need to gain patience and tolerance of different ways of solving the same problem. It can be very different when you're a manager directing 10, 20 people to kind of, we're going in this direction and this is how we're going to do it. It's kind of the, what I call the pyramid style that, that works that well. But as a CEO, in my style, the CEO is to, is to empower as many people as possible. But in that style, if you're not tolerant and patient, you drive yourself absolutely batty. <laughs> there are some things that, that my staff have done that just drive you crazy. But when you take a deep breath, they learn from it. It may be different than how you would have done it, but it achieves the same goal. And that, that's that been key to our success for me, letting go of getting to the destination is important part, not necessarily how. 
And could you give us more detailed example? Like I think it's good words of wisdom, be more patient and understanding, but maybe how you would have handled it before versus how you handle it now. So for instance, you know, when we would hire people earlier on, either developers or customer service folks or whatever, I would expect everybody to be as driven as I was, right? You come in, you care about all aspects of the business and what you do, but you learn very quickly that people have other things in their lives. They're not completely driven by their business or their work life. Not saying that I am, I'm very devoted to my family, but I'm very driven and, and see. Well, when you bump into that, you do have to respect that. Early, the early days, I probably jumped to the conclusion that people were not doing a good job or they were incompetent or they weren't focused or dedicated, when in fact, they just had a different set of priorities. And in the early days, I probably stepped on some toes and, and stressed out a lot of people that now I sit there and I understand and I roll with it more and I try to make sure that the things I would do in two days, you actually give a week for and, and, and that type of thing. <laughs> no, I think that's really important because I think those people who are listening and myself as well, or more the mentality that you were and probably still are, right? That absolutely. Why doesn't everyone care about this as much as I do? We're all driven by different priorities, but you learn that the people are who you're hiring are people you're hiring for a reason. It's all right that we're not all on the same page, that we're all not business driven. Maybe they're more driven spiritually or physically or something else, and they have different priorities. Understand that everyone doesn't think our way. When I say our way, I mean the entrepreneurial way, where we're just usually hustling, trying to make get there as quick as we can, right? So we can like be happy and start. <laughs> Enjoying, you know, margaritas on the beach. <laughs> yep. Go, 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 go. If there's a mistake, keep going. Go, 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 go. Yep. So the other thing I want to, I think, tied into that that I, I think is very important and key to our success is surround yourself with management, leaders, people that really buy into your philosophy and your vision of where you want to be. I've noticed as we've gotten bigger, if you don't have those core people around you that buy into who you are and how you want to do it, very quickly, you can start, the company can divide up. Now, luckily, I'm blessed that that's not the case. We've got an amazing culture. I've got an amazing group of managers around me that very much followed what we call the upside down pyramid, kind of the Southwest way. I'm lucky for that, but it would be advice that I would give to anybody to make sure you pay attention to that early on. Luckily, and there's a whole story behind that. Luckily, when I was flying around the country in the early days, we were a few employees. I love Southwest Airlines. I loved that 11 o'clock, you know, flying back into your hometown and the stewardesses and stewards are, are full of energy and, and optimistic and the flight's an hour late. That just was, a, there's something about that. So I read everything I could about Herb Keller and the Southwest way and we've implemented that. But what's key to that is I also have management around me that buy into it. That's the other bit of advice I would give anybody. Do it early. Surround yourself with the right people early. Don't wait because it's hard. The bigger we get, it's very hard to change people. And yeah, you mentioned that where it's going to bring it up as one of your favorite books is The Southwest Way. So do you want to expand upon that a little bit more of what it, that really means and how you actually implement that in your company? I've always been a huge believer, even as a middle manager, I believe that you empower people to make their own decisions and good things happen. You give them where you want to be and kind of give them some latitude within you know, some reasonable constraints on how to get there and good things happen. You get ownership. I followed that philosophy up as CEO, but I wanted to more formalize it. It was a more of a built-in way of how I wanted to run the company as a manager or my department as a manager. But as CEO, I wanted to go, well, it has to be a way to systematize it or to make it scalable, right? If we knew we we're going to get bigger, how do you change it? How do you apply these kind of thinking to a, a large company in multi-departments. So again, flying around the country in the early years, I just loved how Southwest ran. I loved how the, there was ownership on the plane from the pilots to the stewardesses to the people who took care of you at the, the gate. Everyone was happy. They all wore different uniforms. There wasn't this kind of machine-like thing about it. There were different ages. There were different body types. I mean, it was just the whole nine yards. Everything about Southwest was very different and fresh. And So I started reading everything I could about it. And then, and then I took their philosophy 
he's meshed it kind of with my own. I don't want to say he followed them completely and turned it into kind of a John Andrews version of it because we're not an airline. But they very much believe in empowering people, making sure people buy into the culture of it's people first, then profit. Profit is a result, not a goal. And I, I really just bought into that. The Southwest experience and reading Herb Keller and how much he believed in people and he takes care of his people and how the company itself has thrived. Going back to 9-11, they've never had layoffs. They've never had a downsize. They've never had to get rid of airplanes. They've only grown. And it's a, it's a great company to emulate if you do, you know, if you care about people and think that people come before profit. And when did you start implementing that at Best Pass? I guess I think informally, just kind of the way I am and the way I lead, I was probably, I started off like that, but I was probably formally started by reading about it, implementing it probably 2011, early 2012. So was there any before and after kind of steps that you took after reading this and understanding it more? <laughs> the bigger you get, the more complicated it gets to implement, which comes back to my comment on the management. If you have management, that live it. With the smaller groups, you can keep the spirit. I think one of the hard lessons that, and actually it says that Southwest does this, if you have people that are against the culture, you have to be almost brutal about how you deal with that, meaning move them out, move them to a place that suits their work style better. That's probably a lesson that in the early days we were implementing the Southwest way, for lack of a better word. We had to learn that you can't keep people that just aren't buying into the how we operate around because it only takes one bad apple to really mess up what's going good. So we've learned since then that if someone's not working out very nicely and you, you make it collaborative, try to help them find another company that may be more in line with the straight up pyramid. I'll tell you what to do. You do it and everything's good type of management, which is not the way we are. And I don't give directives. I give, we want to go over here. <laughs> We're generally going over here. How do you guys want to do it? If you're not used to that, if you're not comfortable with that kind of environment, if you're looking for managers that know it all, it can be very uncomforting. We've had to move some folks along that just don't grasp it. It's not for everybody. Well, tell us about some of those difficult decisions when you're trying to implement this. Maybe some of us have never had to fire somebody or, you know, try to quote unquote move them. Can you get some examples of successful ways to do it and maybe weren't successful on how you tried to do it maybe initially? Sure. I mean, the early years are the unsuccessful ones. So you learn very quickly is that what you think you're communicating and the message you're giving may not be clear. You learn very quickly that humans have a tendency to dance around words to try to soften the message. And many times when that happens, you actually create a bigger problem. And in the early days, myself and the leadership, we would dance around telling somebody that, listen, you need to be here. We understand we give a work-life balance and you go to your doctor's appointments, but you can't only work a 10-hour week. <laughs> we would dance around those conversations and hope that they would get it. And we learned very quickly that you have to have direct conversations and say it's unacceptable. We expect you to get your work done and work-life balance, but you need to be here. And that's helped a lot. In the early days, we would string it out for weeks, kind of hoping they would get it and they wouldn't get it. And then you end up having bad conversations with people going, I don't understand. This is coming out of nowhere. And those are never the good conversations. It's never easy to fire folks, but it's really a lot more difficult when they don't even see it coming. So we've learned after that to be very upfront, very quickly. When you see it's something you don't like or the company can't stand, you communicate it clearly, quickly, <laughs> with a desired change state. And if you don't see it, you do the same thing. And then on the third time, you make the decision that this is not the right company for you. And typically, Best Pass is very good about not just firing someone. If it's just a bad cultural fit, we try to give people some severance package to help them move and find something that they're thinking. Very rarely have we fired someone for performance only. Usually performance, you can coach. It's the cultural thing that you slam into the miscommunication, I guess, to wrap up that whole answer. What's been the hardest thing about growing this, about being CEO in general? Well, like you said, as an entrepreneur, you want to go, go, go. The bigger you get, the harder it is to go at the speed you used to go at. So you need to put process and procedure and organization and planning in place, which is very much against how we got here. So from my point of 
interview. It, it, it's like a tug of war that's happening now that I'm not used to. I'm used to turning to a group of my core people and saying, let's do this. And everyone scrambles and we go and do it. But as you get bigger, you can't pivot 60 people and go in a different direction. You have to start to think about organizationally. You start up in a team, you peel off a team. And all of those, that thought process is very different for me for how we got to get here. It's kind of the maturing process. People have warned me, my, my Vistage folks have warned me that once you cross 10 million in revenue, the world changes for a company. So the challenge I have is try to keep the past, the dynamics and the, the fast moving, free spirited kind of spirit, but also introduce enough process that you don't do crazy things and jump off the edge of a cliff without seeing it. And when you're talking about like documenting those processes, can you tell us in more detail how you were able to do that? Or from, I guess, three-person company to yeah. 65 now, because we hear about process and that we need to process our business. So what happens if I started my own company? I've got two people now. I'm trying to make it 10. I keep hearing how to do process, but I don't know specifically like the best way to do it. So what's worked for you? Okay. In the early days, obviously, you're sitting all in the same room. So your thoughts basically connect everything. So when someone is on the phone having a conversation, you're all part of that conversation. So it's very easy early on. As you grow, get bigger, it's not so much the process that's the important part. It's the process that drives the communication that you have to watch out for. Because I've we've actually made the mistakes where we, we overlay process onto what we do just for the sake of process, and it never turns out well. But if you can find process that promotes communication or tears down walls and barriers, those are the processes that seem to work the best. So an example of that would be, for the life of us, we have uh, six different departments. We have customer service, sales, development, finance, and fulfillment, which ship our transponders. As we've grown and those departments have gotten to be sizable with their own managers, we have been having a murderous time getting the interdepartmental communication to happen. And we tried weekly meetings, stand-up meetings, emails at the end of the week. Finally, we implemented something very simple, and that's basically an in-house portal or a collaboration space and an intranet. And that's where the departments actually start to put statuses and everything. And that, procedurally, <laughs> was all you needed to do to, to kind of tear down walls. So it doesn't take big, complicated process or lots of documentation in order to achieve what you're trying to achieve. And from my point of view, process is purely about communication. As soon as process becomes about the process, I try to take a step back and go, why? Where does it help communication? Can you hit on that detail a little bit more? Obviously, you've been through a lot of trials and tribulations. It sounds like dealing with that. So I want to make sure we totally understand what you're talking about when you tried the different type of meetings and thing that actually did work. Sure. And I can tell you, we still struggle with it now. We're getting better at it, but that's probably the biggest Achilles heel we have is that is keeping communication going. In particular, you know, we started as we were growing, we were getting into what we call meeting hell. <laughs> we would be meeting after meeting after meeting. There'd be meetings about meetings. And at some point, we were all like, we have all these meetings and nobody knows what's going on. So that's when we started to look at process and procedure to streamline communication and to allocate ownership. Because the one thing about communication is if you communicate without somebody owning it, that's another place where things... So and by no stretch to the imagination are we done yet. This is an ongoing, I call it a battle or, or effort that actually takes up a decent amount of my time is introducing the processes with ownership. So for example, uh, we bring on a new tolling facility like we just brought on Florida. That requires multiple departments to be involved. Well, before we started to have this semblance of process and ownership, it would be decisions by committee and everything would take three times as long and everybody would be very, very polite and not want to step on toes. So what you have to do is jump in there and go, okay, here's a typical checklist for bringing on a new tolling authority into the, and then each person in that checklist, who owns it? Each part of that checklist, who's the person that guarantees success or failure in that step. Once you do that, things start to unstick and you don't need as many meetings. Again, I have to emphasize it is we're not, we're far from perfect and it is, that's an ongoing struggle. And I anticipate that's the way it's going to be for the life of the company. I think every company struggles with that. 
it seems like making those procedures into something that everyone can collaborate on is the hardest part. And that's what keeps you from growing usually is you don't have those procedures organized or trying to understand it. And it's a big difference. Like you were saying, when you had only a couple of people and they're all in the same room, you can quickly everyone understand their communication in the process. But once you start growing a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, it seems like those are the hardest parts transition to, to make sure you're able to keep everyone in loop. Yes. And the other thing you don't avoid is pages and pages of documentation on the process. Exactly. <laughs> so that I've struggled with that myself in, in my own business. Like, okay, write all these procedures, then I do it all. And then I'm like, okay, I got three or four pages on this one thing. Yep. What happens when it needs to be edited in a year because we don't <laughs> use that software anymore. Exactly. Yeah. So it seems like you go in a roundabout. I want to understand how these companies, our listeners do, hopefully, that I think they'll learn it. And once you start making that first procedure thing, you feel like you've accomplished something, you know, making those checklists. Okay, I'm doing it to grow the business. And then you're like, uh, well, no one's following more and they're, they're all dated though. Yep. Any other key that I think is part of this is ownership. We learned early on that you can't succeed by committee. You can make decisions and set direction by committee, but it's hard to succeed by committee. At the end of the day, somebody has to own something and make sure it gets done. So we, we moved away from kind of collaborative. Everybody does the think tank and when it magically happens to, okay, you own this task, you own this task, you own this task. Without accountability, it tends to fall apart. Even with all the procedures in place, if there's no accountability, they're just great lists on a sheet. Yeah, no, I think it makes sense. The accountability part, especially you made the list for no reason. Okay, so that seems like it makes sense. You brought up the Visage group a couple of times. Do you mind? We've had a couple of other entrepreneurs discuss that. You discuss some more details, kind of the things that you've learned from it. How does someone come a part of it? Do they have to be a bigger company to be able to even have a, be a part of the VCEO? I think you have to be an entrepreneur. I'm not quite sure if there's like numerical uh, qualifications, but I think Vistage groups in just about every major city. So I would recommend, you know, just reach, go out to the Vistage site and then you can find your local coach um, and have a conversation to figure out how uh, you get involved. I was actually recommended through a mentor, actually. I had an executive coach earlier on and he had moved out of the area and he said, listen, why don't you take a look at this group? So I was actually recommended off. I would never have thought about Vistage to begin with. Can you talk about if a thing or two that you've learned that was brought up in the group that you would never have thought of? Is it just one business coach that's teaching you or is it weekly meetings to keep you motivated? What are you getting out of it? It's a monthly, it's a once a month meeting that you go, it's an all day, uh, I'll call it a retreat, but you go for the day and there's various topics that range from uh, succession plans or from how to read financials or how to you know, do one thing or the other, how to deal with the tough employees or how to hire. They run the gamut on things. And there's a single coach that runs it, our chairman, I think they call him chairman, that runs the particular chapter. There's 14 to 20 other owners or CEOs in the group. And I think the thing that I get the most out of the group is the collaborative nature of it, that you're dealing, you're just sitting in a room with everybody that has that same CEO look in their eye, which if you're a CEO, you know it. It's that dance between joy and total terror. <laughs> this is a wonderful thing I'm doing. And then you turn around and go, but I have no money to pay for it. And I think just collaborating with people in that same kind of environment that understand when you say something, they really understand what you mean by I'm having challenges with my VP of X. Everybody really knows what that means. It's not simple enough to fire someone, but sometimes you have to do that. And it's a safe environment. None of those guys are going to run out and talk about this guy I met in my Vistage group is having these problems. So I think that's what I get most out of it. I can't say, and I don't mean to brag, but I can't say I get a lot of it, a lot of business insight. I'm learning I got a pretty good head on my shoulders when it comes to business and culture and watching out for revenues and making sure expenses don't get out of whack. Other people have that issue, but I don't. I think it's more that loneliness of being either an owner or CEO of a company and, and where can you go to vet and talk about some of the pressures and strains and challenges you have. It's a unique seat. I mean, obviously you're starting your own thing here. You know that it's a incredibly unique monkey in the middle <laughs> 
position. No, absolutely. I have my own company where I'm ahead of that. I've got a couple of virtual assistants working for me, but that's about it. So I mean, part of the reason starting this is hopefully those entrepreneurs who are feeling that loneliness can dial in and at least hear your story, let make it feel a little bit less lonely. I mean, that's what helped me in order to grow my business. But personally, can you hit on any of those stories that maybe like personal stories where you did feel so lonely that maybe you want to give up or was there the hardest part when you were in the company? Because it sounds like it's been total growth thus far, but has there been any other challenges that maybe our audience might be able to relate to? Yeah, I think, you know, like I mentioned, having a good core management team around, that takes a lot of investment. And I think as CEO, you know, as manager, you can have friends that are are coworkers and that are in the same level as you as management or above you. As CEO, it's very risky to become friendly with the people that are your management team. And that can be very lonely. And I learned in the early days that if you get too close to folks, it clouds your judgment as to what's right for the business. It always does. But when you start to become friends, and that alone is probably the toughest thing I've had to learn to deal with. I mean, I think that's where the loneliness comes from, is that sometimes you have to make decisions that aren't right for your friendship, but are right for the business, especially when you have 60 some odd people that are counting on the CEO to make the right decisions because they have families and they have needs. And you have to make those tough decisions or have those tough conversations that slam right into friendships. So you tend to, as CEO, shy away from becoming friendly with people in the office, which is, I don't want to say it in any way, it can get terribly lonely because the decisions happen in your head. You have to sit there and have your own battle in your head, which again, which is where Vistage comes in. And that's what I've noticed. And I didn't expect it actually coming from an management up to executive level. I really didn't expect that kind of, ooh. Yeah, I guess I could say it's like you're the teacher in the classroom now, but all the kids are your same age. You just can't really be friends with them because you have to be the one in charge. Exactly. That's a great way to put that, yes. Right. Yeah, you see everyone having having a good time and you want to because you want it, but then you don't have that those people to bounce it off of. So it sounds like that Vistage group helps you. And then even if it was people outside your company, I mean, unless you're friends with a lot, happen to be friends with a lot of CEOs over time. You don't have those same friends to bounce it off of because maybe you have those friends that work those nine to five and they're the middle management. So they want to maybe always understand that. Yep, absolutely. I guess we're getting close to closing here. What would be the best advice or lessons that you might want to share with the audience in closing that maybe they can learn from when they're growing that business from one person to three to 10 to a 65 like you? Always think you can. Don't ever doubt. Don't ever doubt. The places I've always tripped up in my eight year journey here is when you start to doubt. It's better to go forward and make a mistake than it is to doubt and kind of sit and spin waiting for the right answer. That's the best advice I can give. Only good things come of out of action. And I think you have to want to embrace that if you're going to start a business because there's more challenges that get thrown at you that you don't expect. And if you doubt for a second, those challenges start to overwhelm you. So very quickly early on, you just learn to believe. If you think it's good and you're sound in your thinking and you've got the best input you can, you just keep going. <laughs> there are times that I sit there and go, we shouldn't be here. There's no way this business should be here. And here we are thriving. And it's purely because when you hit an obstacle, you just keep, what I could say, work the problem. I'm a software guy. So that's kind of what software guys do. You keep working the problem until you come up with a solution. But I would say that that's my biggest advice is if you're going to do this or you're going to be a CEO, you just don't back off. You keep going. And where do you see the company a couple of years from now, 10 years from now, yourself personally? Well, I like to think we were just starting. We have about 200,000 trucks under our umbrella now in a market that's probably 10.4 million vehicles. So we're just starting. So I think we have probably two or three year runway on what we're doing now, but there's other huge opportunities for us. There's um, ferry operators in the United States. It's about 350 ferry operators in the United States, and they um, have time 
Time Warner or Spectrum and Safe Light Auto Glass and Progressive Insurance that ride these ferries to get to various households. That holds huge opportunity for us. So at least the next three to five years, I see nothing but upside on our core business. After that, I would love to pivot back towards the uh, towing authorities and actually provide some lower cost solutions to them. The best way for someone to reach you if they wanted to say thank you? My email. So jandrews at bestpass.com. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Mr. Andrews. And if you all want to reach him, we have his email. We'll have it in the show notes there. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Take care. We appreciate you tuning in to another episode of Millionaire Interviews. If you're looking for other service-based interviews, then consider episode 36 with Dan Fantasia or episode 26 with Tarang Gosalia, or try out episode 25 with Zach Smith of Funded Today. This awesome podcast is now approved by Spotify. So if you'd rather tune into our episodes via the Spotify app, then just go ahead and search for Millionaire Interviews. People don't care.